Hello and uh, welcome to the delicious recipe here on UPRN. This one's called uh, a thermos of coffee and uh, this will be uh, airing uh, Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we are on the new uh, channel uh, Roku that they've just added in and that's uh, you can find that channel on Roku. It's a uh, UFO Paranormal and United Public. That's the, the name of that if you're looking for that in there. And you can also find us on YouTube. It's uh, UFO Gods and Extraterrestrials and UFO Paranormal Radio, UFO Paranormal Radio. That one's done twice. You can also find, uh, if you're on Facebook, you can check it out. It'll air on uh, on my uh, Delicious Recipe part on Facebook. And we're also on uh, United Public Radio, U, uh, UPRN, on all the rest of the podcast uh, play, uh, platforms that are out there, iHeart, uh, Speaker, SoundCloud, etc. So there's lots of places you can uh, track us down and uh, check us out. And uh, I'd like to welcome there today, I have uh, author Donald Altman uh, coming on here, a uh, former monk. This is a, and then, uh, <laughs> then, a, then a psychotherapist, which is sort of very interesting uh, progression of uh, field. Mine has been very vast, as uh, you all know, but uh, welcome, Donald. Oh, Dell. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here with you. And yeah, I uh, uh, spent some interesting time in a monastery. It was a Theravada Buddhist monastery, and it was uh, really the beginning of a new life journey for me, I guess you'd call it. Okay. And then, yeah. so yeah, how long were you there for? You know, um, I like to say that I was more, I was ripe for the experience. I, I wasn't there for a real long time. In that tradition, you don't take a lifetime vow. It's kind of like, okay, I vow to stay here today. I vow to be here the next day. And every day is kind of a commitment to be there. So I am, you know, I kind of went in thinking it would be for a period of time. I always felt that most more of my work would be out here. Um, so I was in there for a few months. But when I left, I continued to work with uh, one of the monks and continued to do some training <clears throat> with him. But like I say, I think I was ripe for the experience. Uh, I went in because I had met it, um, this monk uh, that uh, uh, is a Burmese monk called Uthilananda. And I, when I met him, it was a friend that said, you know, I think there's a monk I, you would like to meet. Now, that may be a cautionary tale, Dell, because after <laughs> I met this monk and, and I ended up in the monastery. But I think, uh, <laughs> and, and the reason I think why that happened is twofold. One, I'd never met anybody like this before. I mean, imagine somebody that had such a sense of I mean, a palpable sense of compassion that you could actually sense that their openness and their availability and their wanting to help, right? And mm -hmm. this person had that. And uh, the second thing was I had gone through a series in my life of uh, kind of destructive patterns where I, the same thing kept repeating in my life. And finally, it um, you hit a point where I was in my 40s. I was like, when, you know, and I had therapy before and that was helpful, but I got to a point where I was like, you know, I've got to dig more deeply and find out why is this pattern repeating? And it, mm -hmm. hey, who doesn't have patterns that repeat, right? Everybody's right. got a blind spot. There's something that we don't see about ourselves. And so I went into the monastery hoping that I would uh, kind of get to know my mind better. And, I, and I've since learned that mindfulness is kind of like a way to make friends with your mind, but it's a way of healing. You know, as mindfulness is as taught, it's kind of like yoga nowadays. Oh, you know, you'll feel good and you'll, you know, stretch your mind out a bit here and there and get more flexible. But the real purpose of mindfulness is to reduce suffering. And if you go back to the ancient uh, word mindfulness, which is in Sanskrit, sati, S-A-T-I, uh, the original meaning of that word is self-remembrance and self-recollection. So it's kind of like bringing the fragmented parts of yourself together and finding your wholeness again. It's beautiful. And, uh, and it's a way of understanding yourself that you can reduce your own suffering and then uh, try to reduce, do what you can to reduce the suffering of others while you're right. at it. So this this part that you went into uh, the little uh, I won't say stint, but this time that you went in for for oh you could call the... it a stint. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but uh, were you were you already a psychotherapist beforehand? And you no sub... no. So you were doing something beforehand, and then you went to that, and then that led you into this. Uh, yeah, I, guess with the... I mean, well, 
I should also mention out there for uh, people that are listening there too, is that uh, you've written over 20 books. This book that we'll be talking about uh, in a little bit here, uh, Travelers, is a book of fiction, but you've written books on mindfulness. You're also uh, an Emmy award-winning author too as well. So you do have a, a bunch of uh, literary stuff beforehand. So was it books beforehand, then Monk, then then well, uh, psychotherapist? Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I was a, a writer before I became a monk. I was okay. a professional writer, and I, I wrote a lot of marketing materials, a lot of things in video, but I also had done some documentaries, uh, had a short film produced, and like you say, I had been uh, a writer on a show that won a couple of Emmys. For it was a children's show uh, produced by CBS in Chicago, and so that was early in my career, but I had, had continued writing, but what happened is becoming a monk turned my writing career in a completely new direction. And that's when I started to write all the mindfulness self-help books. So when mm -hmm. I got out of the monastery, um, I started, I'd always been a mindless eater. And when I went to the monastery, I learned a lot about mindful eating. And, uh, you know, it's not what we're eating. It's usually it's what's eating us that determines right. what we eat. And so, uh, you know, I was an emotional eater. So when I got out of the monastery, um, uh, in fact, in, while I was in the monastery, I wrote a book called Art of the Inner Meal, which was one of the pioneering books in the mindful eating field. And that was back in the late 90s. And um, so I started doing workshops on uh, mindful eating, spiritual eating. But what would happen is, you know, people would come up to me after the workshop and they kind of come up and whisper in my ear, you know, I've got this eating disorder problem. I have this anorexia, this bulimia. And I'm like, whoa, I don't know how to, how to answer these people or how to work in this way. So mm -hmm. I decided to go back to school when I was about 50 years old into grad school again. And that kind of uh, was a, you know, somewhat of a frightening experience. I didn't know what it was like to go back to school. At age, but, yeah. uh, but I wanted to find a way to help people therapeutically. And the timing was good because, you know, I wondered when I went into grad school, gosh, how are people going to take this mindfulness thing and this whole meditative stuff, which to me was very healing and it helped me tremendously. And I was wondering, you know, how are we going to use that therapeutically? Is that going to be acceptable? And it was just around the time when, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction was happening a lot and John Kabat-Zinn. And uh, there were a lot of, there was a lot of new research around mindfulness and depression, mindfulness and anxiety and so forth. So the timing was perfect for me to enter the therapy field and to bring in these ideas related to mindfulness. So... Uh, after I graduated, I actually worked in an eating disorder clinic uh, uh, for about four years and, and also a psychiatric um, clinic. And so, I, you know, having that experience uh, and writing a lot of nonfiction books, uh, I wanted to reach people in a new way. And that's kind of what prompted me to write Travelers. I felt that, you know, sometimes you read a story and it can, and it, a fictional story, and it, it, grabs you in a way that nonfiction can't. And this story just kind of like grabbed me, actually. I, I like to say that the story wrote me. I didn't write the story. Right. Uh, and so I, uh, you know, it, it takes people into the world of a psychiatric uh, hospital. A lot of people wonder, you know, what's it like in there? And so you'll get an actual, uh, I think, a realistic sense of what is it like to enter that world? But the story is about a psychiatrist, and it's not me. People have read the book and said, oh, that's you, isn't it? And I'm <laughs> like, no, <laughs> that, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist for one thing. I said, but no, that's not me. But uh, it's a psychiatrist who has uh, uh, suffered a great loss. He lost his daughter in the story, and he is grieving this agonizing loss, and he's unable to heal himself. And here's somebody who's helping other people, but he's struggling. And it's mm -hmm. driven this, this death of the daughter, driven a wedge between him and his wife. So he's really uh, kind of struggling on a lot of different fronts until he meets this kind of mysterious traveler. And it's kind of a synchronicity that happens. He meets this traveler and, and her, she has a sentient canine, a little spaniel that's on her shoulder all the time. <laughs> and at the same time, there's a, uh, a patient, a young patient who is suicidal who comes into the psych ward and he has visions or hallucinations of seeing this traveler and so it's kind of this unique synchronicity that ends up drawing him in 
to beyond his rational mind. You know, he's a scientist and most psychiatrists will tell you they're very much steeped in the scientific method. And mm-hmm. I think the, um, the field of mental health actually is kind of in the stranglehold of a materialistic view of things. And so it was also my way to say, hey, you know, we want to help people. We've got to get out of that materialistic viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And uh, that materialistic stranglehold, stranglehold, you know, it it kind of reduces people to a diagnosis. And the treatment doesn't include the spiritual part of their life necessarily. It might. Mm-hmm. And of course, I would always inquire of patients that I worked with, you know, do you have a spiritual practice? And I try to, you know, see what had worked for them in the past or what their inclination or proclivity was. And, uh, but a, a lot of times it's not. And so a diagnosis can, uh, you know, that's what's used to really uh, get insurance billing. That's why right. there's this book called the, this book's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM of mental disorders. And so you look through this big book and you say, oh, this patient's got these symptoms, oh, so I'll give them this diagnosis. Now the, the and that can help a clinician actually uh, develop a treatment plan. So it has a benefit, but the mm-hmm. downside of that, of course, is so let's say you're the patient and somebody says to you, oh, you, you've got a major depressive disorder here, or you've got anxiety, or you've got schizophrenia or an eating disorder. Well, I've had patients who would come to me, walk through the door and say, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a anorexic. I'm a schizophrenic. Right, they've, I mean, they, they, they've, already... they've identified <laughs> themselves with that <laughs> label. And, you know, that's doing a disservice to them, I think, and, mm-hmm. and limiting, uh, you know, how they see themselves. So, so well, that's, that's been a that's been a part there that I, I believe that it's sort of uh, has come up with. I'm not sure how it is with that. Uh, if whether it's this is a Gen X thing or the the millennial thing is this whole labeling that you have to be into this sort of uh, well, I am this, I am, I am that, and you see this a lot. Well, you see this now even uh, in social media about right. what group you're in, and I, I guess that comes into very. Uh, I guess when you're starting to self-diagnose yourself, uh, <laughs> that, that can get into some very uh, tricky psychological problems. I guess in a way there too, because you've already affirmed yourself to this is how you are. This is the reasons for my problems, and you've basically you've skipped steps on how maybe you can correct paths beforehand, and maybe not go down that route. Maybe. Well, you know, you raise a very interesting point about social media. So once we be, once we identify with that identification or that label, we defend it, right? You start defending it and you become uh, contentious and you become less willing to listen to others, right? Mm-hmm. Or I want, you've got to follow, you've got to have the same labels that I have. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that doesn't really help us to understand right. others. It doesn't help us develop compassion, does it? No. So and, I, and plus also it, ends up, it gives you a sort of a, a self-excuse for the reason you are that way, right? Everyone can say, well, the reason that uh, they don't go and take the garbage out is because they have OCD because I've been uh, self-diagnosed this way or or this is the part. Yeah. And, uh, I got a pill that I can take and uh, this is uh, it. And you, you brought up a good point there is that I guess with uh, the part with uh, the medical field is that it's, I guess, in North America, pretty much has, has become very heavily uh, pharmacy-based in there and insurance claim-based, all, all about the dollar. And uh, I guess uh, looking at the part of uh, uh, self-health, uh, fitness, uh, exercise, uh, fresh mm. air, and uh, I, I think there's also part there about meditation and taking a step away from technology you know why becoming unplugged is a, a thing to sort of look at is that i guess people can't deal with themselves that wow you really nailed some really important concepts there about self-care um and you know if, if and how important it is to unplug so we can reflect back you know reflect into ourselves have an interior life I think that what's happened is that we're looking outward all the time. We're looking at our phones, we're looking at screens. And I think think it's the average American adult looks at screens about six hours a day. 
But if you look at the eight to 18, I think it's the eight to 18 or eight to 28, eight years old to 25, it's about seven and a half hours a day are wow. spent looking at screens. So uh, there's a, there, you know, we're kind of losing this ability to wire up the brain through face-to-face connection. And that's how this, this prefrontal, this area of the brain that is really the most human part of the brain behind the eyebrow ridge and the mm-hmm. kind of underside part of the brain, uh, that's where we get empathy from. That's how we, uh, you know, wire up for social connection and and uh, self-knowing awareness and intuition. So it's a very important part of the brain. And I think um, inadvertently, we may be kind of neglecting developing that part of the brain. And, you know, I remember the time I was in an airport and it was kind of a surprising thing. I, I was going very early in the morning to get, I used to do a lot of seminars around the country, across Canada. And I, it was like six, seven in the morning or so I was waiting for the flight. And uh, in the terminal, there was a, I saw a woman with her child. The child might've been, you know, five years old or something, but the woman had her phone and she was really totally engaged in her, looking at her phone. She must've been texting somebody. She was kind of smiling and laughing and, but her kid, her poor child, kept looking up and trying to get her mom's attention. The mother would just, you know, ignore, say, like, wait, and just mm-hmm. come back to her phone. And I thought, you know, I wonder 20 years from now, if this child who has been, you know, didn't get the attention, the need, and the care that she needed, what's that relationship going to look like, right? Well, for sure, yeah. Yeah. Well, or or well, you think about even- yeah, even even that part about that. Well, you you see now with the with this addiction that uh, uh, a lot of the youth are having there with uh, with this technology and being on social media, is that it's almost like a, a false sense. This way I look at it, anyways. It's almost like a false sense of community because you are alone doing a thing, talking to people that you don't see for a sort of connectedness connectedness through technology but you've lost that physical connectedness through verbalize and uh, touch and talk and meeting somebody and having interaction because now like that, well, we're both on a screen here right now as we're talking in that yeah. we're not in the same room, but it's a very different conversation when you have someone in front of you and you have that uh, flow of energy in between uh, in, in a space and right. you see yeah. reaction and you see, mannerisms and stuff like that and how things react and i guess you also with being a being a, a therapist there too is that if you were dealing with uh, patients there on a on a video thing versus seeing them in your office or something like that you would get a different maybe a different perspective or maybe just the the feeling of i think people feel afraid when they have con uh, connection face to face it's a very different attitude attitude and very different way to be because you see that even with online bullying people can say all they want to say behind a computer absolutely scene. absolutely I, you know, they, yeah go ahead well you know i had some experience with that of having uh, clients who um i and, and you know there's this whole telehealth thing right mm-hmm. and i know people who've had telehealth and uh, but I think it just goes uh, it's kind of, it, you know they give you a lot of homework it's very kind of manualized and it's not um, as personal as it might be. You know, when you're in the same space with somebody, somebody, and they, you know, people can see that they're private, they're willing to share more about themselves than they are over a screen. Because mm-hmm. it just, I think it's just natural. So I had clients who I had in practice, but then who moved away and said, you know, they were living in a more rural spot. And they said, I want to continue to see me, see you. And so I saw them. Uh, you know, we worked on a screen, but I, it was not the same. And I mean, I already knew these people, but I could not see their entire body and I wasn't close up. I didn't feel, you know, sometimes you pick up on the smallest little things mm-hmm. when you're with somebody. And again, mm-hmm. the sharing is different when you're in the same room with somebody. So uh, I hope that uh, people, you know, can return or are able to are willing to meet again if they're seeking help or just to have friends to, you know, how many of those people that you know anonymously, yeah, you, you're on the same chat with them or whatever, but if you really need help, how many of them are going to show up? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. 
I think of uh, well, uh, looking back to the part that you said there about uh, I guess whatever you take it from being a monk, and then how do you sort of pull that in towards being a therapist? Is there any sort of sort of connect because the Buddhism and stuff like that is dealing with a lot of uh, I guess sort of self reflection, meditation, uh, disconnection, being alone. Like uh, people uh, have a hard time being alone, where and. But then also, there's also a, a need and want to be together. And we sort of see this falseness now with technology of being together, but you're actually alone, but uh, pretending to be together. It's, it's, it's sort of a, a very weird dynamic that we sort of progressed. And this is recently, I, I guess, in the last 20 to 30 years, when basically the internet and the World Wide Web and social platforms sort of came into being to where they are right now. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that the alone together thing is a really good saying. I think there was a uh, there was a song with that title <laughs> some years ago, but uh, you know, it's an interesting dynamic. And uh, for example, I think it's important to make sure that in your life you have time to connect face to face with the people in your life. Um, a lot of people or at the computer, or maybe their partner comes in the house or the kid comes in and they stay on the computer. I think it's important as a ritual to get up, leave the computer, greet that person face to face, give them a hug. How was your day? Right. And uh, get some immediate feedback from them. What's the mm -hmm. message when, some, when you come in and somebody doesn't greet you? Right. Right. I mean, it, so I, and the same thing when leaving, I found that these little rituals, when you embed them, in a relationship can really uh, create a lot of togetherness and connection, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're so mobile nowadays, moving from one place to another, but when you leave or when you come in, that's an important time to engage with somebody face-to-face -face or give them a touch on the shoulder mm -hmm. or a kiss or something to say, we're going to stay connected even though you're not here. Right. Like I, I even think back to, well, I was born in 1970, grew up uh, the first part of my 10 years in uh, Southern Ontario around Toronto, Mississauga area. And every Sunday, uh, my dad's side of the family would meet at his parents, my gran grandma and grandpa's every Sunday and be family dinner. And everybody that was that side of the family that sort of le lived around that area would come there every Sunday. There'd be a big mm. meal and they'll meet and talk and there'd be family and then with my own family there we all had dinner together didn't have breakfast together lunches people are doing different things during the day but always at uh at evening time have dinner and sit down and eat whether it was for the 10 minutes or the 20 minutes or whatever <laughs> just to sit down and you see that a lot now with uh we're not a nine to five world anymore uh things are uh we're not even a monday to friday world anymore oh wow yeah, like it, it's not like I I, geez, I worked night shift for almost about two and a half years, and I was like uh, worked on different schedules from a lot of my friends and stuff like that. But uh, the, the way that the world is now, it's not the same thing as it was fifty years ago, where it was Monday to Friday, nine to five, and you yeah. have this sort of set patterns. And now we don't have, don't really have that really anymore at all. We everybody's in a race to get nowhere fast. And mm. that's what it sort of seems to be like that. <laughs> well, we, yeah, we, you know, the family used to have time to get together at a meal time and kind of report and catch up on their day and, and, and connect on what was happening. Right. But mm. uh, actually there was some research that was done. It's kind of interesting. They put some cameras into different uh, kitchens and people's homes. And they watched how they were eating. And uh, it was kind of a, you know, one at a time, somebody come in, put something in the microwave, eat and leave, and somebody else would come in, and but they weren't connecting, mm -hmm. and they weren't sitting around a table anymore. You know, I really think it kind of happened when the TV dinner trays came in back in the fifties, <laughs> and the, the circle of the family kind of opened up, and we all started had our little tray and watching TV. Mm -hmm. You know, so well, that, that that's exactly right. Yeah, that that was the whole part. That, well, they came the, the what was it latchkey kids and stuff like that when uh, the parent uh, family that can no longer have uh, uh, the mother at home that took care of the household. You had to uh, you had to have a two person income to <laughs> deal with the way that the inflation and the economy and everything that were going because it was no longer that you had uh, the one uh, adult that was doing the job and then one to take care of the the home the home and uh the kids and stuff like that this sort of balanced family unit that is sort of very 
drastically mm-hmm. sort of uh, has uh, shifted away from that, whether it's been for, I don't I, I don't even know. It's it's sort of it's a weird sort of thing that that's not even looked looked at anymore. In a way, is like a, I think there was a stat there is that uh, they asked uh, uh, a bunch of uh, males about uh, marriage and stuff like that. Even females in that about looking about being married and the divorce rate is uh, over fifty percent. And it says, well, what's the point out of that? You work and you lose all your money. Like it's uh, it's not it's not <laughs> yeah. look 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 yeah. the same way anymore as it was forty fifty years ago. You know, it, it's interesting, and I think we need to look at some of the history of this. You know, back in the 1940s, there was a sociologist by the name of William Ogborn. William Ogborn was at Columbia University, University of Chicago, who was a well-known sociologist. And think about that time. You know, technology was just beginning to take hold. I think microwaves were like the size of a refrigerator right, <laughs> right now. And... Um, you know, uh, and, and so technology was really just starting to come in, and he had an idea. He he called it called it um, um, culture lag. He believed that when a new technology came into our lives, it would take up to six years for us to assimilate it, learn how to work with it in our families and in our culture. But think about it: the average cell phone now has about a six month developmental cycle and a new one comes in and there's right. new stuff to learn. And, you know, I have a, uh, a son, it's actually a bonus son, my wife's son. And he, now here's a young kid, right? He's 23, 24. And yet he says that, you know, God, they keep changing the apps all the time. Even he's having a hard time keeping up with everything. And he's of that generation. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, so how do you, uh, have time to even assimilate it and learn how to bring it in in a thoughtful way. That's why mm-hmm. I like to have people do what I call a uh, exploration of time spent to actually think about. Mm-hmm. And I have a little chart I have, and I, I give that away for people who want it. But that exploration of time spent just kind of breaks down different activities throughout the day. And then you make a note of how many, you know, in 15 minute increments, how much time do you spend doing that activity? Mm-hmm. And I've had people look at that. And one category is un, non, uninterrupted face-to-face time with your partner, with a significant right. person in your life. And I've had people who did this, and they said, well, can I count the time that, you know, during the commercial, on, you know, when I put it on mute, that's the mm-hmm. only time that obviously they had face-to-face <laughs> with their partner. And, you know, that would give me pause. <laughs> so I would have had people, though, who looked at that and filled out this little inventory. Yeah. And said, wow, I've got to make some changes. I didn't realize that when I got this new computer, I stopped using my bike bicycle. I stopped engaging mm-hmm. in this or that activity. And yeah. they said, I really don't want to do that. I need to rebalance. So it's not yeah. a, a blaming or shaming of ourselves, but it's just like, you know, we need to be increase our awareness quotient as mm-hmm. to how we are using technology. It's great. It's a wonderful, amazing thing that we can even have this conversation like this, Dell. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, though, we need to have healthy boundaries with it and make sure we're still maintaining those personal connections and giving them the time they require. Oh, for sure. I, I, I've said this many times here on the show, and that is that technology should be an accessory that is a, a tool to use to help you uh, in whatever endeavor you're doing, whether it's uh, finding information or uh, finding out uh, whatever, to, how to go and change a tire, you can get a video and stuff like that. As an accessory, it should not become a thing that it's another appendage. And uh, I, I just, uh, I, I've mentioned this before, there was a TVO uh, special uh, a bunch of years ago and they'd taken a bunch of uh, people from Southern Ontario uh, different age groups, uh, genders, and stuff like that, and they'd taken them out camping, and they'd gone and they they had to go and surrender their cell phone, their laptop, their iPad, any sort of technology device that they had there, and they took them out. They had to go and live in a tent, make their own food, gather their mm-hmm. own water. And this was only going for like a, a week or two weeks. I can't remember how long this went for, and the meltdowns that happened in the first twenty minutes of people that were had to disconnect mm-hmm. from that from that device and not being on social media. I, I guess they sort of related that to being like a dopamine rush that this yeah. finding out. And that's, that's weird. Cause you, if you're dealing with addictions there too, is that if you're getting some sort of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, 
I guess, a dopamine rush or some sort of thing from that, that uh, as addiction. And you look at other people that are taking addictive pills and stuff like that. You got to have to sort of put some yeah. sort of a semblance into the, both of these things. You know, your, your, your story about uh, going out to the wilderness reminds me of an actual study that was done. They actually showed that um, they tested preteens for their ability to notice facial expressions and, um, you know, and, and emotions. Mm -hmm. And their, their scores were very low. They were not very good at it at all. So they took them to an outdoor camp. They took away their screens. And for a week, they had to uh, relate face-to-face -face with their peers. And at the end of the week at that camp, they were retested for their ability to notice facial expressions, emotions, and they regained those abilities in just right. a week. Wow. So it shows you that the brain, we're wired for it, but mm -hmm. uh, over-technology use muted those skills. And you know, it's critically important for young people to develop an, the ability to navigate their emotional world, right? Oh, yeah. So um, I think that there, you know, there's a lot of information out there that we, we know enough that we need to, um, and, it, and I guess it's going to fall on parents to kind of do that because, uh, you know, who else will teach those lessons? Right, exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's amazing. Yeah, that, I, well, when you see the, the brain is a, a very, very complex computer in itself there, that which is that they can actually help the body. And I think there's a lot of parts there is that uh, mind over matter and uh, a part there with self-healing that can happen. Like you have people that get into accidents that have major brain injuries, the brain will rewire itself to allow yeah. certain things to go. Like uh, we barely scratched the surface on uh, understanding, I think, the brain in uh, its full capabilities to the supercomputer that it is, which is sort of really, really amazing. And this gets into the part with uh, mysticism and buddhist stuff there is that way that they sort of looked at at things there and energy flows and stuff like that and people i i guess the part i'm sort of getting towards there is that how you found that with people uh in the in your profession there is psychotherapists there is that that the profession has sort of moved more to we've diagnosed a pro a problem here is the drug instead of looking at things about how to self-help well uh you know, psychiatrists and some psychologists are, and some nurse practitioners are prescribers. So they may be more apt to prescribe a medication to solve an issue, whereas um, social workers or I'm a, I'm a licensed professional counselor, we're more likely to work with the underlying dynamics and, and, and deal with the conditions of what created this, what are the roots of this problem? You know, how can you grow? as a result mm -hmm. of this, uh, whatever it is that you're suffering with. So it's a kind of a different approach. And I'm not going to say that one or the other is the, the better here. I think sometimes mm -hmm. both work in conjunction. But let's take the idea of healing from grief, for example. So grief is something that for the first time, and grief is key actually in travelers because this psychiatrist, again, has lost his daughter. He's dealing with this grief, doesn't know how to handle it. But grief is something now that the uh, the field, you know, if you don't heal within a year, they have something now they call prolonged grief disorder. In other words, there's something wrong with you if you don't wow. heal within a year. And I think that is wrong. It's caused a lot of controversy in the field, actually. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of grief experts who believe that's wrong. It's stigmatizing grief, isn't it? Oh, and, yeah. you know, to say that if you lose a child, that you won't grieve for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And... Even as somebody who uh, was steeped in Buddhist thinking, so, um, you know, there's, a, yes, attachment to something can cause suffering, but also sometimes we need to stay attached. Uh, as long as that attachment doesn't uh, keep us from moving forward in other areas of our life. So, you know, some people view grieving as a, a love letter a letter of caring to the person who you lost, right? Mm -hmm. And so you keep that memory alive. And, uh, and yet at the same time, that's not exclusive from also enjoying your life and moving your life forward in other ways. And that's what I think um, the, is the kind of the crux of that story in Travelers is how does this guy do that? How does he 
connect. And what happens is he gets beyond his rational mind and discovers that there's a way to, that there's a spirit of his daughter that he's actually connecting with. Mm-hmm. You know, he has to take a mystical journey to do it. It has to leave his ordinary daily reality. I think what happens, and I've been uh, fortunate in that way from doing the meditative practices, that once you still the mind, once you quiet the mind of all those thoughts, and I like to ask your audience, you know, how many thoughts have you had today? Did you ever try to count the number of thoughts you had in a day? <laughs> right? Yeah. It's probably it's possible because we have, average person has at least 20,000 thoughts a day. Mm-hmm. Right? And how many of those thoughts tell you something really profound or helpful about who you are? Yeah. <laughs> right? Most of them are, um, you know, uh, maybe habitual thoughts, conditioned thoughts, or sometimes just distressing thoughts that research shows that our mind just will generate distressing thoughts. Mm-hmm. But uh, once you're able to still your mind and create silence, you can connect with other kinds of awareness, other, you know, you can call them transcendental realities or whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. the mystery, the wonder, uh, your spiritual nature, whatever you want to call it. But you're able to uh, not just be limited to this more material viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, I'd, I'd watched a, an earlier uh, part of a podcast that uh, you were on there, and I guess you'd come up with something with like a, a three-minute, three uh, uh, I guess, meditation parts during a daytime that you could sort of, uh, people could do to sort of, uh, I guess it's a part about uh, is self-reflecting, I guess, and sort of quieting themselves and getting disconnected out of that. And, and I was, when I, I heard this, I, this is interesting. I, I like what you, your thought about that, but I can see part of this is that uh, if you look through uh, with school, you look at the lifetime of a, of a child and uh, going into an adult is that we've sort of pulled ourselves away from our rest breaks. Like uh, when you go to school, you had your recess, your lunch, your recess, and you went home and you mm. did whatever, but your recess were never uh, put as a, a quiet time or anything like that, or a self-reflection time or a disconnection True. time. It's been like that. And then when you go to work, you work, you go, you just go to work, you got your coffee break, your lunch break, your coffee break, and you're always <laughs> just talking about your work yeah, during your break time. You don't have a time for yourself. You're, always <laughs> right. still, you're still in that. You're, you haven't sort of stopped and taken a breath. And I, I, I look at this part as that I, I've had this, uh, uh, realization and stuff like that and many other people haven't been people have talked about this too is that you come to a problem and you can't solve you're racking your brain about it and just walking away from it and doing something else for a while there can sort of reset your mindset and thinking about this and see things in a different way or maybe something comes to you that you didn't weren't thinking about before by doing something else it's sort of this getting out of that stuck pattern that you're in right there you know creativity is is a beautiful human endeavor and what happens in creativity is the brain creates new connections right mm-hmm. if you're constantly th- trying to solve a problem you're, you're just paving over the same road over and over and over so stepping away like you say is a wonderful way to let you know let my unconscious do it let something else work on the pro- problem i mean i think that einstein and so many other people who've solved scientific problems have been able to do that they'll step back and the idea will suddenly appear to them or maybe it'll come to them in a dream you know it's interesting even in writing this book um uh there's there's a shamanic kind of a shamanic guy this traveler who uh traveler jackie is her name she takes this therapist on um a spiritual quest a mystic mystical quest and um and in doing that she has to have him, you know, open his mind to new things and give him a, and he actually gets a spirit animal. Now, mm-hmm. when I, as the writer of the book, I was like, okay, who could be the spirit animal? I wanted to, this guy should have a nice strong animal, something, you know, something like I would like, like a tiger or a big animal, <laughs> powerful. <laughs> and no matter how I tried to push that into the story, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's not the right animal. I, I, you know, I was kind of, I was stumped. Mm-hmm. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to let my unconscious do it. So I did a little meditation. I took a walk in nature. I just let it go. And, uh, I don't know, maybe like three days later, I wasn't even thinking about it. All of a sudden 
it popped into my head what that spirit animal is. And actually, you could see it on the cover of the book. Okay. I don't know if you can see that. Yep, birds. Butterflies. Butterflies, okay. <laughs> it's yep. something I never would have thought of. And mm -hmm. yet, it, <laughs> because I let the creative uh, uh, space come in, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and, and it just worked in ways that I never could have imagined if I had forced a, a spirit animal in there. So I well, think that, that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's actually a really interesting one to actually pick there because you figure the life of a butterfly from caterp caterpillar to chrysalis to that and then the, the cycle of life that that goes through there. Sometimes the most innocuous uh, little creature and stuff like that has, holds the most amount of power where you're thinking like tiger, lion, bear, <laughs> elephant, yeah, exactly. right? something <laughs> big and powerful that's there. But there's sometimes the smallest little things hold the, the biggest surprises. Yeah. Absolutely. And the whole idea of transformation and metamorphosis that a mm -hmm. butterfly, the symbology of that is just very powerful. So, uh, yeah, it just it gave the story a whole new dimension for me. But, you know, I think that when we're stuck in life, just to step back and and say, you know, the answer is there. Allow yourself to find it in an unusual way. There's a there's a quote that I have in the book from uh, Vivekananda. At one point, the guy's having a difficult time and the therapist, uh, the psychiatrist in the story thinks he's going crazy because all these things are happening to him. And he goes to see this trusted uh, former supervisor of his, who is a friend of his now, and it's an older woman. And she tells him, she actually quotes the words of Vivekananda, who was a 19th century Indian, a Hindu sage that brought a lot of uh, Eastern ideas to the West in the late 1800s. And he says, uh, and the quote is, uh, the infinite library of the universe is in your own mind. Mm -hmm. Isn't that beautiful? The infinite library of the universe is in your own mind. Right. But if we're filled up with static, we can't uh, reach that library. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because uh, even Nikola Tesla had stuff like that where the connecting to this uh, awareness through his own mind and and through dream and uh, waking dream and dream and stuff like that, which is sort of interesting and yeah. the stuff that he sort of came up with and uh, <laughs> advanced society. But yeah, wow. I'd like to actually, uh, that's a good point. I'm going to have to read more about him. Um, yeah, because his, he has stuff there with uh, talking about matters, energy, and space, three, six, and nine, the secrets of the universe. And uh, uh, I, it's really interesting parts that go into that is that the people that talk about him and uh, do reports on him or, or, or books about him is uh, there's always sort of a, a very uh, one way sort of view of it. Not like, I think, well, it's basically even how like history goes. History is written by the winner. People mm. want to tell their narrative how things are. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's the whole thing is that uh, you only understand your own reality. I can't understand your reality. I can't mm. see what it is through your eyes, how you experience it. And uh, I, I think that's. <laughs> I don't know. It's an interesting guy. Anyways, if you go look into it and how he sort of viewed things and how he was sort of connected to uh, his his mind's eye into this uh, cosmic awareness and cosmic library. Yeah, there was another guy who was a, a kind of a, a, a spiritual uh, teacher back in the 40s. I think it was uh, Walter Russell. And this guy was pretty amazing. He uh, he had incredible visions that lasted for long periods of time. And he saw a lot of things that like kind of reminded me of uh, that when you were talking about Tesla mm -hmm. and he would see different shapes and formulations and pretty amazing. He was a Christian, but he, had, mm -hmm. so he was a Christian mystic and he could see all of these things. Wow. <laughs> That's it. Uh, on my show, they've been uh, talking uh, to uh, very different uh, uh, people with different views and stuff like that about uh, their reality and uh, how they view their world. And uh, whether it's through uh, religion or through some sort of uh, pagan uh, uh, mythology or uh, just how, uh, whether it's even with this channel, ghosts and paranormal and uh, mm. dealing with spirituality and how 
I guess everybody sort of can be right in a way, but also I guess it's how you perceive things and it, looking at how uh, when you have uh, clients that come in there, you, you notice there how they perceive their world differently? Yeah, I think part of my job is to see if I can enter their world and understand it. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're able to enter anybody's world, uh, they feel understood and there's a connection with them. You know, there's mm -hmm. all these different therapeutic modalities. There's cognitive behavioral, there's, you know, dialectic therapy, there's internal family system. Some of these things actually are in mentioned in Travelers. Okay. But uh, no matter what the modality is, um, it's the relationship. I think has been shown to be most important in how somebody heals. You know, if you're going to get buy-in, uh, if you're going to have a, you know, if you don't have a rapport with somebody, then um, I don't think your therapy is going to be as effective. So mm -hmm. there's got to be a connection there. Yeah. I was like, we were just talking before the show there about uh, people being stuck in their little bubble of their, uh, of a uh, area where they haven't traveled or haven't seen uh, things from a different point of view. And, and uh, I mentioned before there is that uh, people uh, listening to uh, mainstream media and stuff like that, and, or just listening to one talking point and uh, not getting a, a full well-rounded uh, view or, uh, or understanding of uh, the question or the answer or the, the opinion that is going on there. And I think yeah. that has been something that has been greatly lost uh, and recently in the past 10, 15 years. You know, I, I think in some way you could think of, uh, you know, here's a great mystery. We don't know where we were before we got here. We're not sure. It's a mystery mm -hmm. what happens after. And some people have ideas of what happens. But while we're here on this transitory journey, we're all travelers in a sense. Even if you right. stay within five miles of your home, you're a traveler. You have your own experiences. And I think how wonderful it is to connect with other travelers for those people. Why do you, why do you go to another country or another city or another state? Mm -hmm. Right. You want to meet other travelers. You want to meet other people, get other, learn about how they live and learn about yeah. them. Right. And expand mm -hmm. your mind in some way. So, uh, you know, so I like to think that we're all travelers in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, we're here. And so we're able to meet other travelers, learn about them, um, and help them if at all possible. So imagine you're off traveling, you don't know the language, you're counting on other people to somehow help you. And we have a lot of technology that will now guide you. But I think, again, we're missing that human connection. But yeah, um, that that when you're lost, I remember one time years ago, I, I was part of a, a traveling uh, program that I was that I was working for. And so I was going to different cities every week. And I remember, remember, you know, sometimes uh, the truck would break down or um, one time we ran out of gas. We were in the, the southern states of the U.S. and this uh, officer came and saw we were in distress there. And he said, you know, he helped us get some gasoline. He says, well, you know, it's late. You're not going to get a hotel. Why don't you stay at the, the police station? We have a cell you can sleep in. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, this was years ago, but yeah. people were uh, open like that. You know, oh, very I different. there was no fear. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, it was like kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen Andy of Mayberry, but anybody's seen that show, yeah. you know, <laughs> with Andy Griffith and Don Knotts, a little tiny, you know, podunk town. And, and yeah. so this was like the town where he was at and the fire department and the jailhouse were all in one little building. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, there were a couple of cots there and there was a guy who was on the road with me. And so he, he went in the, he fell asleep at one of the cots and the, this officer said, I'm going to do my rounds. You could join me if you want. And I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. So I went on, wow. I went on the rounds with them. And, uh, but you know, what I learned back then, I think, and I, and I believe in my heart is still applicable is I, you know, I traveled across the country and then uh, I found that uh, people are decent and mm -hmm. people want to help. Right. Yeah. And that fear wasn't there. Right. And, and so we need to not disconnect from people. We need to connect. Mm -hmm. We need to realize that 
yeah, there, you know, sure, there are some things we don't understand. There are some scary things out there, but it doesn't mean you stop engaging in life. Oh, for sure. I, I, I've said this before is that it's, it's funny when you get into these uh, bigger metropolises of people where there's uh, 2.5 million people in a city that everybody's on top of each other, but they're, they're most disconnected and, uh, and then a, people from a small town, right? It's, it's, even though they're more jam-packed, you know less people there than yeah. you do from somewhere else. And a little saying there is that I remember my, well, this is a saying that's been said many times is that sometimes you just need to stop and smell the roses and just to sort of uh, get off that, uh, that quick, wow. quick, uh, quick little escalator that's rushing you past everything. You need to stop and be aware and uh, see your, your, see what's out there. I think that's a big part that uh, people have, uh, my, my wife tells me all the time there says my brain must be going, uh, Five million miles a second because I'm noticing everything. Wherever I go, I'm picking out things, changes of everything that's happened in my environment, my surroundings there. Because I'm all that, that, that maybe that's from the Boy Scouts and my uh, curiosity, adventureness, sort of being a little kid there, being aware of stuff. But I think people have sort of gotten away from that. We've been too focused in this and you not know, seeing I, everything out to the peripheral. I'm so glad you said that about smelling the rose because I think that mindfulness is about being in this moment, smelling the rose, but experiencing it as you've never, as if you've never seen it before. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, you know what deja vu means is the feeling of having been there before, but there's also the French have a term, jema vu, which okay. means never having been there before. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of like that childhood awareness. Adventure, yeah. Yeah, adventure. <laughs> You know, so it also reminds me of when you think about time, there's linear time, and that's chronos time. Yep. One thing happens after another, it's sequential, and it's causal in some way. But there's another kind of time, it's called kairos time. And kairos is that special moment. Kairos transcends ordinary time. It's almost a dimension uh, of eternal time, right? That special yep. moment. And to, you know, what you're describing, that being present in that open way, time actually in a way stops for you and you've entered Kairos time. And that's a time when synchronicities can come in. That's a time when different kinds of connections can come in, in your life and possibility blossoms in that moment. You know, I want to uh, share a quick story on a friend who was a uh, counselor. In the... <laughs> well, then we, we will have to save this uh, story for the next time they're done. Oh, okay. <laughs> we, 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 we've almost ended on a perfect thing of you talking about time, and we got about, uh, about a minute and a half left here. <laughs> this has been so great. This is uh, too bad my show wasn't longer, but we can always have you on again there and continue sure. from there. Uh, I just uh, quickly there, uh, just tell people. Uh, uh, where they can uh, find your book, uh, Travelers, and and your other books there too as well, and uh, social media if uh, people want to get a hold of you. Yeah, you know, Travelers is on Amazon.com. It's You can find it on Barnes & Noble, any of the online booksellers, or you can order from your local bookshop. You can find out more about all my books at mindfulpractices.com, M-I-N-D-F-U-L practices.com. You could sign up for my newsletter and also some online courses, CDs, and things like that available. Awesome. This yeah. has been great. I really yeah. enjoyed this there, Donald. <laughs> oh, me too, <laughs> Dell. <laughs> the time the time just got away from us there so yeah. quickly. It was, that's that's how, was how it goes there. But uh, for all the rest of you that are out there listening, they're still to the delicious recipe. Uh, I want to thank you for all for tuning in. And I want to thank my uh, my my production team, my beautiful trio of Hey You, Kitty Pot, and Blaze. Great listeners, never talk back, and they help out with the show. So uh, thank you very much, and uh, oh, for you all out there, uh, tune in next week there uh, for the delicious recipe, and we'll see you then.